1: Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it.
4: Good morning and welcome to CounterPoints Friday. I'm Ryan Grimm here with Emily Jashinski. Emily, how you doing?
2: I'm good. I forgot my glasses once again. Lest you think that I would only do it one time, I have done it again. So please excuse any squinting if you're yes. watching this on YouTube.
4: Some serious. I'll, I'll, I've got my glasses here, so I'll be able to read everything that you need.
2: I learned that Ryan actually has great eyesight, yeah. which he wears glasses a lot, but uh, I guess it's for like when the it's teleprompters tele- are really yeah. small. Yeah.
4: Right. Otherwise, I otherwise I stay away from them. That's why I don't even have contacts. I was just but telling you. But reading a teleprompter, like, forget it i can't do it
2: yeah it's it's not easy all
4: right so there was some really good news for the economy and also some good news this week uh for democrats there's the narrative since mid-october fairly because you started seeing like a polling collapse was that the red tsunami was back the red wave was back Uh, this week you haven't seen a counter narrative develop in the press yet if the press wanted to concoct one the numbers were all there. Mm-hmm. So Tom Tom Bonier, a so de- Democratic strategist, uh, compiled these. Let's put that up. This is a A one, uh, he he pulled up a bunch of different uh, generic uh, generic poll gener- congressional generic polling
2: generic generic ballot
4: generic ballot. Yeah. That's what it is. Which is which is one of the most reliable sources so far. That we've had this this one has not fallen apart uh, so I can put my glasses on here and read this for you you guys can read it for yourself and this since he tweeted this another one has come out that has uh, fr- that ca- came out from uh, echelon insights which has uh, which has Democrats up uh, like plus two uh, plus three uh, recently you've got Democrats up, up you know just across the board you can see it plus four plus four plus four plus five plus three plus five uh, depending on the likely voter register voter moves it in some polls doesn't move it in other polls this is a, this is this is movement like you're when 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 it's starting to get aggregated together like this some you're catching something do you think that this is just noise or do you think that something about gas prices collapsing the stock market again like most people don't have money in the stock market but it it signals to people kind of like people take it as a proxy mm-hmm. for the future for the for confidence. employment, for confidence, for future. That, you know, that, that's, it's been rallying the last week or so, coinciding with these numbers coming out. What's, or, or is this just all nonsense?
2: I think it's actually all nonsense, and I do appreciate what Tom is doing there because I think it's always helpful to challenge priors, especially with polling. When polling starts to congeal in one direction, I actually get nervous because, I, and we're going to talk about this in this very segment. Um, I'm very nervous about the competence of the polling industry, as the polling industry itself is very nervous about its own competence, per a New York Times report this week. So I think actually, if you dig into some of those polls, one of them was an Economist go or an, an Economist Ipsos and a Politico YouGov poll. Those Polls have had Democrats ahead by healthy margins with like one exception for months. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that, to me, where you're showing no movement is quite interesting and not necessarily a signal that there's there's a tick up. Towards four Democrats, right. and also if you look at the generic ballot aggregates, so Real Clear Politics generic ballot aggregate shows a little bit of movement over the last several days. Like over the last few days, it does show Democrats doing better on the congressional ballot. It still, though, has them down by a, a decent margin, a respectable margin. If you're Republicans looking at that and thinking what it indicates, um, and 538 also shows it sort of tightening over the summer mm-hmm. until about a three, just about a few weeks ago, and it's still a pretty wide uh, gap. So I think when you're looking at the aggregates, it's interesting, but to the question that I think Tom was um, kind of raising here, it's like, what does go into the, right. the creation of a narrative? <clears throat> what is the media looking at, right? So if, if X creates narrative Y, then why doesn't Z also create narrative Y? Um, right. I, and that I think is worth a question worth asking.
4: Right. And the, the polling industry, like you said, is is getting very nervous, and you can tell that by and we put this second one up uh, story after story after story is coming out that is basically like blaring to readers and voters do not trust us yeah like we have we have no we have no idea what 's going on here, but if you are going to put faith in any polls and f- faith is the wrong word but if you 're going to put any stock in any polls, the national polls aren 't that bad and haven 't been that bad so if you take twenty twenty and twenty sixteen the national in general, the national polls on both, you know, Hillary, Hillary Trump, and also uh, Biden Trump, were pretty close.
2: Hillary Trump was pretty bad.
4: Well, she won by three million votes, yeah, and the polls had her up by you know a couple points. Mm-hmm. Like, But, you no, know, they were saying, like...
2: I guess you're right. The electoral map was where they were getting let that they, information. They got
4: all the yeah. state... They got, the, they got key states wrong. So it's when you drill down. But if you looked at the popular vote... Yeah. They, like, nailed the popular vote, mm-hmm. both 2016 and 2020. And they have nailed the generic congressional ballot... Yes. ...pretty consistently. So if... Now, the, they, the aggregate, does, because obviously they're all over the map here. It, Democrats need to be, like, what, plus... Plus two or so. You need to be to up wi- a bit to win. Feel good. Yeah, like they don't. If if it's even, uh, because of the structural advantage that Republicans have, Republicans will control the House, and that's why five thirty eight. It's a key. That's one of the reasons five thirty eight still has Republicans. It's something like an eighty one, eighty two percent chance mm-hmm. of of holding the House, but but a very but a very close margin. And and so movements in that generic poll, I think, are a lot more interesting than new polls coming out of Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Nevada or even Florida like or Ohio like those might be wildly off what we might find out they were off by 10 yeah. In, in like Ohio or something like that.
2: Well, I remember a wash I think it was a Washington Post poll in 2020 that said, what was it? Joe Biden was going to win by like 17 points. Uh, over <laughs> In
4: Wisconsin, right? In Wisconsin. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so the state level polls, it can be shocking. Um, right. And we saw a huge swing just in Wisconsin with that Marquette poll um, for Johnson and the Mandela Barnes race um, over the course of a couple. That again, it didn't seem to me like that was organically just where public opinion had moved, uh, but that there was you know some error in the polling. That was showing up in its in itself, um, but that is. The, the state level races, though, like the fact that we can't gauge them well is kind of insane. And from the pollster's perspective, it's insane that we would expect them to maintain the same level of accuracy. When if you look at some of the articles that we just put up on the board from the New York Times and 538, they're talking about some really huge, like mm-hmm. tectonic shifts in what they have to tackle. So they have all of this technology up. Upheaval. They have the question of Trump. People being like, our politics getting so bitter and divisive that people are afraid of saying who they're voting for, or they have seen pollsters get it so wrong they flat out don't want to be involved in their operation. Um, but here's a here's a quote from this massive sort of New York Times um, dive into polling just this week. It said, "Quote: Spend several hours talking to them, pollsters, and there's only one conclusion you can reach: the same cross currents of mistrust, misinformation, and." polarization that divide our nation are also weakening our ability to see it for what it is. The stronger those forces grow, the worse our polling gets. There's a 538 article, Ryan, that you sent. Uh, Here's a quote from that. One big concern is that we have fewer surveys of individual contests in 2022 than in previous midterms, and a larger share of that smaller pie has been conducted by partisan pollsters and or sponsored by partisan organizations. And they did a big analysis to make that determination. Mm-hmm. So that leaves us, I think, in like, that's to your point about the congressional ballot being sort right. of what we have to go off right. of. That's what we have to go off of. Until but, we don't. <laughs> right, 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 right. And that's not a perfect metric. But when you're looking at um, people saying, you know, they know what's happening in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Arizona, well, a lot of what they think is happening is based on polls that even pollsters are worried are flawed.
4: Right, because they're going to get turnout wrong a lot the the more local you get mm. and so that's why when you do a, compl- a national poll a lot of the mistakes you make wash wash themselves out on each side and so 538 had this fascinating look at and we, we included in that earlier one, is fascinating to look at people who aren't doing polls. Mm-hmm. And you you start to read that story, and you're like, well, this is an impossible story to do. How on earth can you do a story <laughs> uh, based on people who don't answer polls? How do you know who they are? Because they don't answer you. Well, the answer is, so they started out with this gigantic sample of people uh, and then conducted a longitudinal study, which means they they came back and they they hit them you know every month or so to check in where they were. And so... It's easier to get somebody in this first time. So they, get, so they got like thousands of people in for the first time. Then a bunch of people didn't show up for the second round. Mm. Some more people didn't show up for the third round. But then it plateaued. Like once you were, did the first two, like you were in. So, you then, so that gives you a characteristic of people who do polls and the characteristics of people who dropped off out of polls. One of the con- conventional things that people think they understand is that uh, Trump supporters aren't going to, you know, are going to be less likely to take this poll. They, and they sort of did find that.
2: Republicans in general
4: Republican, now. Right. Republicans in general were more likely uh, to drop out. Weirdly, Fox News viewers were more likely to participate mm-hmm. in the poll. It was Trump supporters who are primarily supportive of Trump and not the party and who get their news from social media. Mm-hmm. Those were the ones that were, you know, the most likely to drop out in a disproportionate way to, to other ones. But the real people who dropped out, and this is a, a sad statement about our democracy, but one that everybody, I think, watching this will understand, people who just aren't going to vote. Yeah. Like, so it's not like the, peop- the, the main people who aren't taking political polls turn out to be people who are like, well, I'm not voting. Get away from me. Yeah. Like, don't, don't bother me with this. I don't I'm,
2: want to talk about this. Yeah.
4: Cause I'm not, I'm not, and they're like, why would I waste your time or my time? Yeah. Like, I know I'm not going to vote. Right. So...
2: But then again, like that's so that metric aside, whether or not somebody's going to vote is also becoming harder for pollsters to gauge. And right. thus you have a huge difference uh, between polls that just go with registered voters and polls that go with likely voters. And it's just like this huge nerdy, somewhat right. nerdy distinction that has a just gargantuan effect on the quality of those polls. And I mean, it's just one thing that people forget or I, I guess maybe sort of want to not talk about in Washington is that uh, when five thirty eight is talking about those those partisan polls, those part the more we're relying on partisan polls, the more we're allowing them to do what they're intended to do, which is influence these <laughs> elections. Partisan polling is not just for personal information. There is uh, a, a sort of influence, uh, Ambition involved in right. all of that too, and so the more we're relying on things like that, the less well off all of us are. Right. But I think what's really, really noteworthy is that from all of those articles, that pollsters are very nervous about polls, and this is after half a decade um, of of looking at dramatically big right. misses in some of those states, as you mentioned, Ryan. And,
4: and what, yeah, and what the pollsters have been trying to figure out is, are the people, you know, who we can't get to these, which, let's say it's the Trump-supporting social media users, as they describe them, are those people similar enough to other Republicans, like Fox News watching, you know, main sources, Fox News, Republicans, that if we increase the weight that we give in a poll to the Republicans that we did talk to, are we going to be able to make up for the fact that we didn't talk to all these other Republicans? That's the big question, because if they're roughly the same category of people then your numbers are going to be accurate, whether mm-hmm. whether those people talk to you or not, because you know generally what they think. But they're not, I don't think. Yeah. Like, I think th- there, there are different types, you know, people are getting people who get their news from different sources are going to end up voting differently. And so I think one of the key questions that has, hasn't gotten as, it, you, it was getting a lot of attention like a year ago, but it's kind of dropped off, mm-hmm. is, is the question of whether those voters, these Trump supporters— who like Trump more than they like the Republican Party, and who are mostly just online, uh, t- tend to be younger, uh, like, a- itinerant voters, are they going to show up for the midterms?
2: And for Republicans, right? right? And is it, and that's a huge question, by the way, um, because we know that there are a, there's a good handful of people who support Trump more than the Republican Party, who had previously voted for Barack Obama, and these people are in swing states. And what do you um,
4: think? You know these people better than me.
2: For, do you for think re- they're showing up? Well, I think I would have really been skeptical of that if it weren't for COVID, which I think changed the conversation and made a lot of people on the right feel Mm -hmm. like we are in a a sort of political emergency. Um, And that demands uh, basically voting for Republicans from that perspective because of things like CRT, because of things like uh, trans ideology in schools, like people have seen what they See, or they—they they have ex- been exposed to what they see as a sort of apocalyptic level threat. Um, so you think Republicans
4: have moved them enough away f- yeah. from just Trump.
2: Yeah, I think so. Them. But the, and, and that's the question with Fetterman. I, going back months, you can find us on the record pretty much talking about that, that Fetterman is a decent foil to Oz. Like he's, I, I would mm-hmm. not take back that I think John Fetterman is a good candidate. Yeah, I think a
4: healthy John Fetterman exactly. is, is up by eight points.
2: A, a, a healthy John Fetterman, I think, is is wildly underestimated by Republicans. Right. That's not what ended up happening. And so the race turned out differently. But I do think a, a healthy John Fetterman would have been a super interesting test. Um, right. a, a, you're seeing a little bit of a test of that with Tim Ryan, but I, I think it's not— Pan, uh, panning out as enough. he would have hoped. It's, you're yeah. right. He's not tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't wear shorts. That's anyway. right. Well, Ryan, uh, part of the way we started this conversation is that you said there is a little bit of good news, uh, mm-hmm. but in all of that news, there's right. there's economic news that came out on, on that front on Thursday, but buried in all of that news literally buried in a, a BEA right. PDF that you sent our way, um, is some news about the housing market.
4: Right, so this is coming from the GDP report that you saw yesterday, the headline being that after uh, two quarters of uh, negative growth, of the economy shrinking, it's back to growing at a 2.6% rate. Mm. Uh, we'll see if that gets adjusted in the future. Uh, but the, the biggest or one of the biggest uh, drags on the economy was in housing, now this is to be expected from, you know, not just expected, but kind of uh, done on purpose from what the Federal Reserve has been doing by tightening monetary policy. Matt Stoller would be very happy, I think, in some ways, sort of <laughs> to see this, but not what, what Matt wants to see is re- rents go down uh, rather than a complete housing crash. And I don't know if you can get both. But so let's let's put up this uh, from from this. Yeah, from this is Bureau of Economic Analysis. Within residential fixed investment, the leading contributors to the decrease were new single-family construction and brokers' commissions. And so, brokers' commissions is obvious. That means people aren't buying and selling houses, which is going to push the uh, prices of houses down. You know, you know, uh, less demand. You know, you know, that pushes prices down. That's that's, and you're already seeing rents start to come down. The other part is wild. So we're st- in other words, with with mortgage rates at over seven percent at this point, home builders are like, well, we're not we're not building homes right now. There's because you just crushed all of the demand, mm-hmm. and so if if you are trying to get prices down, and you believe in supply and demand, basic supply and demand. There's two ways you can do that: reduce demand so fewer people can buy homes, or reduce uh, or shrink the economy. Which, which then reduces the supply. The other way to get prices down would be to increase the supply so that now instead of uh, 10 houses in an area, there are 50 houses in an area. Yeah. So all of a sudden now, those become more affordable. That with a growing population would seem to be like the way that a, a sensible society would want to bring prices down because we're not going to have fewer people (laughs)
2: Well, yeah, yeah, that's, I see housing as one of the weird, like, sneaky and quiet things that affects a million other things in our politics, but that we absolutely never talk about. Like, we're just not talking about any, even like culture warriors who want to talk about the fertility rate and want to talk about the marriage rate. Like, housing is a huge aspect of that. And this is coming on the heels of something you hear very little about, at least in conservative circles. You hear a good amount about it on the left, although I would argue it's still too little housing shortage that Mm -hmm. is like creating this totally out of touch aspect of what people considered the American dream, right? Young homeownership. That's your Mm -hmm. investment. That's your property. That's stability. And that's the sort of place that you build the rest from. That was already out of reach for a host of reasons, but one a huge one of those reasons is that there's not enough housing and there's specifically not enough what people consider starter homes, which is like under 2,000 square feet. Um, and I forget the the price metric there, but like, this is get, taking a right. really, really bad situation, not just for the, our politics, but also for our culture and making it way worse.
4: And there, and there's an argument that, and plenty of people on the left would, would say this, that Fewer single-family homes is good, mm-hmm. and if you look at Europe, they're like, "What are you? What's going on over? What are you guys doing? With all these single, just endless homes. Yeah. Like, why don't you guys live in row homes or in apartments or in you know multifamily housing? Like, yeah, like where do you get all this space? Uh, and so, it's not a given that you're that everybody, you know, is going to have a starter home. Is going to have uh, their their own home. Like that that was. That was kind of the American bargain, like mm-hmm. that was the American dream mm-hmm. that was sold to people like okay we got a lot of problems here, we, there's a lot, of, a lot of upward social mobility a lot of downward social social mobility, but that we do have a contract here that if you if basically if you work hard uh you you can you can own your own home and your and your children have a chance of doing better than you did like yeah. that's the that's the basic bargain now that we're pulling that bargain out, we're saying actually. You know, not so much. And and the Fed, uh, by turning this around, could create a kind of structural, fundamental shift in construction that just says, you know what, the single family homes we've got—that's that's what we're going to go with from now on. We're doing you know, multifamily homes, apartments, condos, well, homes. Well,
2: so could lawmakers on the local level, like across mm-hmm. the board. And obviously they are deeply involved Which we in the need zoning also. Like, questions. Yeah, yeah but it, so there, the New York Times actually had a super interesting dive into basically the death of the starter home that they published last month. And here's a paragraph from it. They wrote, from a builder's view, there's nothing particularly preferable, preferable about higher end homes. The profit margins aren't generally higher. They demand more customization. They're riskier to build and actually economic downtimes, entry-level housing, on the other hand, is invariably in deep demand. So where did it go? Um, But the demand question, I think, is interesting, too, because there are—I actually would totally believe that demand has gone down, just because a lot of people have— Uh, people my age have been conditioned to see this as something that is out of reach right like since the great recession it was the the talking point is that this is out of reach and that's true for a lot of reasons um but i think it's also sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy to that extent because people don't even look um I, i mean i know there are jokes about zillow now like snl did a great sketch about like people scrolling zillow um and listen We've all done that. Uh, but the idea that you would actually sort of make a move on it um, is a is a totally different question. And I feel like a lot of people just genuinely see that as out of reach. So I think maybe there's a, a, a chunk of demand that probably isn't there where it used to be. Uh, but at the same time, the demand in general is absolutely there.
4: Right. But de- demand like from your heart is different than demand coupled yes. with the, the ability to pay. Yeah. And so if you're Slowing down the economy, what that means is that people have less money, people have unemployment goes up, people are in deeper debt so de- so demand isn't just like that would be nice it's like that would be nice, but I can also afford it right and did the Times say it was mostly about affordability or what was there what, uh, what was their takeaway
2: th- that it just is zoning reforms basically like zoning law is one of the reasons that a lot of this hasn't happened um, and that it's just kind of a a market What's the best way to describe it? Maybe no just man's like,
4: land market kind of thing. Yeah, it's just like yeah.
2: falling through the cracks of the market. The idea of the, the starter home, um, and I thought it's particularly interesting that they're saying, well, this, it's not like it's worse for developers. It's not like developers are doing this because of you know the invisible hand. Like there, there actually is a market incentive for that, <laughs> um, including demand. As they say, there's invariably deep demand for affordable starter homes. So it's it's a really serious problem. It's the same thing. Like uh, just coming from the perspective on the right, it's the same thing with student loans, right? Like. We cannot be talking about marriage and children and not paying attention to the fact that people are drowning in student loan debt. You and I disagree on what the solution should be to that. But the fact that like it's the same thing with housing, student loans, there are all of these kind of financial issues that the right has for a really long time sort of shrugged and left to the market and said the market will sort of work this out that the invisible hand will, will sort of guide us uh, to uh, fitting all of these puzzle pieces together. Um, but that has wreaked havoc on the culture too. It's wreaked havoc on, on things that Republicans really purport to care about right now. Um, and again, like a lot of people probably disagree on what the solutions are. I'm just saying they don't even talk about these things.
4: Yeah, and I think w- one of the things that I think is going on is because they have uh, kinked so much multifamily housing and so many apartments by, you know, the the NIMBY...
2: Yes.
3: Yeah. Uh,
4: then be blockages. That uh, there are a lot of single family homes that are now occupied by multiple lots of people. Yeah. Like say you got a group house with like four people in their twenties living in it who are all you know professionals mm-hmm. or they're all or they're all you know they're they're yeah exactly you know you know what I'm talking about yeah. so
2: yep.
4: uh, if then you build more multifamily housing uh, you build more apartments like th- that those people might prefer to live in because then they get their own space. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you free up all of this other housing for then a- for actual families, single-family housing for single families. Right. So it's not, it's not necessarily an either-or. If, you, and if you're saying like, hey, we, we need more single-family homes, well, one way to free up more single-family homes is to make it so that you're not packing so many people into so many, so many of them. Give those people a place.
2: And I think the broader point is that, you know, this this indication that you pulled from uh, the BEA, I think I have the exact sentence in, in front of me. Uh, yeah, real GDP turned up in the third quarter, increasing 2.6% after decreasing 0.6% in the second quarter. The upturn primarily reflected a smaller decrease in private inventory investment, an acceleration in non-residential fixed investment, and an upturn in federal government spending that were partly offset by a larger decrease in residential fixed investment and a deceleration in consumer spending, imports turned down. That's the paragraph that, that you pulled yeah. out. And you can see how all of these things are happening on the surface. And then beneath that is lurking, I think, something pretty troubling. And this oh, yeah. is going to this is this is throwing gasoline on that fire. I mean I, I don't mean that with the, the sense of like intentionality, but it's making a bad situation worse. Although it and, is
4: kind of intentional.
2: Well yeah, yeah. It, it's not like they it. don't know that that's going to happen. It. If
4: if the reduction in brokers fees can warrant a mention in the overall GDP, its impact on overall (laughs) GDP. That is a massive reduction. Suck to be a real estate broker right now. Yeah. If you're um, you're watching this, I I feel for you. This must have been a rough couple months.
2: And again, taking a bad situation and making it worse in ways that will ripple out. um, So we'll continue to pay attention to that. Should we move on to the CHIPS news?
4: Let's do that.
2: All right. Well, the the chips legislation is has seemed to already have been yielding fruit. Um, I'm, I'm sure you remember what was passed to the, just this summer um, on a pretty bipartisan basis to incentivize uh, chips manufacturers to reshore to come back to the United States a shockingly huge portion of uh, semiconductors, which sounds again like I was not paying attention at all to the semiconductor discourse until a couple of years ago. And when you like look at exactly how desperately we need semiconductors for our entire economy, let alone our military, that's not even getting into the national security implications, Uh, you realize how these these chips are crucial to the health of the United States, and a huge swath of them are manufactured in Taiwan. Last week, as the Congress convened over in China, Xi Jinping— Got his his third term and basically signaled that he thinks he he should be moving up that timeline on potentially moving in on Taiwan. At least that's the way a lot of China experts read his comments in regard to China, Taiwan mm-hmm. last week, which I think were you know they're, they're sort of characteristically and uh, predictably vague. But the China watchers who saw that, you know, said this is an indication that he he seems itchy, even more itchy, to move in on Taiwan. So the reshoring efforts in the United States need to happen a whole lot faster. And as it turns out, we don't have a lot of people who are qualified to work in the industry.
4: Yeah, so we can put this put this element up The reporting here from computer world, which dives in, dives into the the labor shortage all across the board. Um, the CEOs and, and the other hi- and the hiring managers interviewed in the story are like we can't find people for anything. Yep. like we're, it, we're, we're getting killed. One one guy's like, you know, it took I it took me a year searching the world uh, to find this what, engineer for this position. And then it took nine months mm-hmm. to get the visa approved. Nine months is fast. Like that guy's lucky yep. that they got that through in nine months. Our immigration policy uh, around this hasn't been updated in 30 years. Uh, there's there are there are quotas that we have that are, that are capped. That once you've gotten a certain number of uh, people in on these on these particular visas, that's it. You're you're done. No, no nobody else can get through. Uh, the the backlog uh, because of you know inadequate uh, funding plus trying to trying to manage like a 1980s law in a 2020s economy plus and we, we've talked about this before it, it actually matters no no government has ever wanted to invest in like uh tech upkeep <laughs> so they're all running on like should see these like compute like you think you're walking into the set of like a 1980s
2: mm.
4: uh, like movie about like like, like halt catch fire or something but the, the technology
2: year. is developed here that's what's super frustrating Perhaps the government can't
4: this. buy it because they're like afraid that the Washington Post is going to catch them like spending money on computers or something
2: <laughs> the la- so, yeah, so a lot so of the like, research yeah, just,
4: just use Microsoft Word One it's fine
2: the, the, the research that people are using in Taiwan to manufacture these chips that are used in the United States or imported into the United States is American research uh, for the most part and that's per computer world's reporting which is like
4: done, it, done largely by immigrants here at American University
2: it's right. am- And it's just like an amazing, amazing like cycle of just stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so dumb. Um, and this is what Computer World wrote in July. As Intel, Samsung, TSMC, and others move ahead with plans for new computer chip development and manufacturing plants in the U.S., those efforts are running into a new headwind. There aren't enough people with the skills needed to run facilities. As you mentioned, Ryan, Computer World followed up this month in a report exactly about that and said recent initiatives to bring tech manufacturing back to America are Working, according to the Reshoring Initiative. In its report, the group predicted 2022 will see a record 350,000 new jobs directly related to domestic companies bringing work back stateside and offshore companies committing foreign direct inde- investment to their U.S. based divisions and facilities. All right, so 350,000 new jobs is fantastic. We need people to work in those jobs and then to contribute to the American economy for that number to really be positive. Because if you have 350K new jobs and you can't fill them, well, I don't know what we're going to do. Because the Washington Post also just this week said, and the engineering shortage in the U.S. is frustrating the chips industry. Harvard Business Review. Here's where it's also terrifying in a new uh, review. Said, we found that the time it would take the supply chain to recover or return to normal operations from a 10-day disruption of production at one fab would be nearly 12 months and would create significant financial losses across all supply chain partners. Just a 10-day disruption. So imagine Xi Jinping moves in on Taiwan um, oh, yeah. and manufacturing, they, they're saying right now, 12 months. 12 months. We are not remotely equipped for that. We have been uh, just pretending this problem isn't happening for years and years and years. And now we're in a situation where we're sending billions of money, billions of dollars to Ukraine and, and fixated either w- whether you think it's rightfully or wrongfully on that front. And Xi Jinping uh, knows that.
4: So this, this whole thing reminded me of this fascinating exchange between, uh, and I was able to find it just now, between Trump and Bannon back in 2015 you might remember this interview, uh, Trump was on his Bannon's Breitbart radio program mm-hmm. and, uh, they, and they had a disagreement over immigration policy. And I'm, I'm curious how you think this has shaken out in the, in the seven years since then. So it's, it starts with Trump saying, it's a shame that so many kind of foreign-born Ivy League graduates uh, aren't allowed to stay in America after they graduate because they would be what he called, they would be job creators as he says it, mm-hmm. which sounds like a common sense thing anyway. Like, yeah. why why'd you spend all this money training somebody and then kick them out of the country so they can go take their talent
2: elsewhere? Although they spend a lot of money getting trained here as well. It's a huge incentive yeah, for Yeah,
4: it's great. I, I, we win on every which way. <laughs> uh, and then so then uh, Trump sees Bannon, like, kind of being skeptical. And Trump's like, we have to keep our talented people in this country. And Bannon says, um, I'm going to get the transcript there. To- <laughs> And Trump says, I think you agree with that. Do you agree with that? <laughs> and then Bannon says, Well, I got a tougher. You know, when two thirds or three quarters of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from South Asia or from Asia, I think my point is a country is more like a, a country more than an economy. We're a civic society. So Bannon's like, No, you bit- go home.
2: So, what that perspective misses is that you can walk and chew gum at the same time, meaning that, and, and that would mean basically that if you want one part of it, you have to have the other part of it. So, we should have a strong civic culture, um, and we should do things to make that more robust. There's no question about it. But we don't have a choice. We, we really do not have a right. choice at this point. If we, if we are at a situation right now at this very moment where if, if something were to disrupt for 10 days, uh, just manufacturing of semiconductors, they are so, they're like, um, uh, what's a good example? I mean, it's like a domino, right? Mm-hmm. Or just something that you, you pull right. that one thread out of the fabric and it all starts to unravel. That's what they are to our supply chain. Even though they sound like this, you know, abstruse concept um, that tech people only care about. It, these things are crucial. Um, yeah, they'll
4: be a metaphor in the future. Yeah. People will be like, it'd be like taking the chip out.
2: <laughs> it, <laughs> I don't want that to happen, but I think yeah. it's going to. So that's the, the point that you have to make to um, people who – and I think, again, there's like sort of reasons for skepticism about contributing to the American project, the American economy. If you don't really care that much about America, if it's just all about money and that maybe what Steve Bannon thinks the situation is, the bottom line is we don't have a choice and you can do more. Right. To cultivate that sense of sort of patriotism, anyway, yeah.
4: and so the the chips legislation is throwing money at it, and we'll we'll see whether the, uh, the multinational corporations involved here just keep the money or actually invest it here. There's that some there's some evidence that they're already sending it o- o- offshore. Yeah. The second question is immigration. Can we get people here? Uh, set, you know, the to be would be can we actually create more of a domestic. Uh, supply of these workers. Like, can we can we actually start doing STEM education better? Uh, can we can we make our own pipelines? Um, but the third part is this rather radical move that Biden made just before she's speech, and uh, we, we've talked about. Uh, uh, Crystal and Sagar have talked about this here, but this is his export control ban on on chip on chip technology. Uh, People like people fo- who follow this industry just completely shocked to see such an aggressive move. It's saying these high-tech chips, which China does not have yet, have the tech capacity to produce, but is trying to.
5: Hmm.
4: You cannot export these anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it was it's a huge, dramatic ratcheting up.
2: Did we do of, that first to them?
4: Well, we, yeah, yes, they have. Yeah. I mean, they they've, they they mess around with us all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah like but they messed around with our solar panel stuff, but we have never done anything. This severe yeah. around uh, around export controls, and it, it's it's giving you know people say, well, this might make him invade Taiwan earlier. Other people say that this that the fact that he's going to do it anyway means that you cannot you cannot be exporting this technology that will give them a quantum leap uh, in their in their military and other economic capacity. Uh, Quick story. I know we're gonna move on to the next one. Uh, so a, there's this book that I think is like every, everybody should read if they're if they're curious about this, uh, called The Long Game uh, by this guy uh, Rush Doshai that that sketches out yeah that that's, that's that's kind of takes a pretty hawkish gives a hawkish lens to the U.S. China relationship and really examines what it is that uh, you know is the Chinese government's long-term strategy. Mm-hmm. And he, he's kind of so hard-edged and clear-eyed about it that a couple months ago, I was like, I, I gotta have this guy, after I finished the book, I was like, I gotta have this guy on my podcast. I wanna hear from him? So I reached out to uh, somebody, who, actually to Stoller, who, who knows him. Mm. And he's like, oh, uh, he's at the NSC now. <laughs> so he now is the director of China policy at the National Security Council for Biden. Mm. And having read that book, uh, it is a remarkable fact that that the U.S., which has been so dovish uh, on from both parties uh, for so long toward kind of cooperation with China, permanent you know, trade relations, etc., uh, has somebody with this kind of uh, perspective on them. And so, when when this was announced, uh, when Jake Sullivan announced this this chip uh, export ban, he said, "This is 100% national security." decision, this is not about an economic decision. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if this becomes bipartisan, but this, like, this is a new kind of era. Mm-hmm. in U.S.-China relations.
2: Well, and that's what's pathetic is that it took essentially an emergency, you know, to wake the United States up and to, you know, reshoring should hopefully bring with it uh, a host of economic and national security benefits and cultural benefits along with those economic benefits, meaning you can uh, have more company towns organized around uh, these these areas that have really good jobs and that sort of have the ripple effect going out from there. Um, but again, these things did not just go to China. China in, like, a case of happenstance. Like, this was an intentional thing. Like, moving manufacturing of these to Taiwan, moving manufacturing, or letting so much manufacturing go to China. This stuff happened as— Doing it
4: all on, Ch- on Taiwan, what, what, what are you thinking when you know, <laughs> like, where this is headed?
2: <laughs> well, they like, did Like, nobody,
4: nobody 30 years ago was like, uh, are we sure that no, this I island mean- right off China's mainland that they claim with some legitimacy? <laughs> It's the place to put this semiconductor industry.
2: I went back and read Bill Clinton, a New York Times article about what Bill Clinton was saying um, around the time of the WTO, and it is shocking um, what level of just incompetence informed that decision. And nobody wants to, you know make their own country. They live in that country. Their grandchildren live in that country. And yeah, if they have a bunch of money, they know they'll be fine. But at the same time, they want to have a good historical legacy. Like there's incentive to do a good job as president. And they really thought that was a good decision. Truly thought that was a good decision. And that's because you have people tripping in your ear um, for whom it will immediately be a great decision. Yeah, it's good for some of them. Yeah, it's good for some of them. And just right before, it's just a terrifying fact to end this on. um, I read an analysis this week that if you get a new uh, chip company in the United States from point A to point B, so starting construction, opening up the doors, three years. Think about mm-hmm. that, and think about that in, in Xi Jinping's mind, um, because that doesn't leave us any room.
4: And One thing I learned from Doshai's book back when Clinton was doing that, their, their strategy had a name. It was called Hide Capabilities and Bide Time. Mm. Like that's, that's what they named it up through 2008. and After the 2008 financial crisis, like, all right, let's roll.
2: Yeah, we did. We did great yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> we really read.
4: We've hi- we've hidden capabilities enough.
2: So we saw yeah. right through that. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the World Cup. Right? Actually, I don't know if I've ever asked you. Are you a soccer fan?
4: I played soccer in high school. Does that count? No, for no I'm not idea. really. A, I'm not really a soccer you're, fan. F- you're
2: a football guy. Yeah. American football.
4: Yeah, American football. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, soccer's fine. Like, I I, I don't hate it. Like. No. Watching it as much as some people do?
2: No, I like soccer. But that said, uh, this is not a happy soccer story at Sorry. all. Uh, this is a, a sort of crazy story that will surely develop um, over the next few months. This is from the Associated Press. A former CIA officer who spied on Qatar's rivals to help the tiny Arab country land this year's World Cup is now under FBI scrutiny, and newly obtained documents show he offered clandestine services that went beyond soccer to try to influence U.S. policy. That's according to their own investigation. They added, the months-long FBI probe focuses on whether Kevin Chalker's work for Qatar broke laws related to foreign lobbying, surveillance, and exporting sensitive technologies and trade cap. Tradecraft, said to people with knowledge of the investigation. All right, so the FBI would not confirm or deny whether that mm-hmm. investigation existed to the Associated Press. Um, and there are all kinds of different parties wrapped up in this crazy story. You, you come back to Tom Barrack and the United mm-hmm. Arab Emirates lobbying, which Elliot Broidy is saying has something to do with this because UAE and Qatar, mm-hmm. and it's just a mess. What did you make of it as it broke on Thursday?
4: I wonder how much more of this we're going to find because the World Cup, the competition for the World Cup, is one of the most corrupt things on the planet. Uh, and I think when it's a competition among Gulf countries, it's going to it's going to take the corruption level, you know, up yeah. up several notches. Yeah, I did a story. But we're involved you
2: know, in it. Like that's the best part of the story. Like this right. is American lobbyists.
4: I mean, we have the best spies. Yeah, yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, uh, hire, hire, one. Who, who better? Yeah. Uh, so, I did a story a couple of years ago uh, about the most audacious financial uh, sabotage effort that I've, I've ever come across. It was uh, I, I got I got documents. I got the entire presentation um, that was put together uh, by a consulting firm and and a, and a particular bank in Europe. Uh, for the United Arab Emirates, on behalf of the United Arab Emirates, which was livid that Qatar had gotten the World Cup. This is like such a huge deal, you know, for, uh, for, for Qatar. Uh, and the Emiratis wanted a piece of it. And so they concocted this scheme where they were going to corner. And, and there is evidence that they actually carried this out or carried pieces of it out. So they were going to corner the uh, Qatari currency. You using these various uh, brokerage houses and transactions, and then they spell all this out. You can just Google the main words I'm saying here. You can go find a story. It's un- completely unbelievable. And then they were going to use that to say, like, look what a what, look what a mess Cutter is. Their currency is like flying out of control. And then they were going to go to Cutter, uh, and they were going to. But also, they were going to sell it shorts. So they're going to make money on the side of it. <laughs> well,
2: you got to do yeah, that.
4: Obviously, you're going to do that. <laughs> you
2: can't just leave it on the table.
4: <laughs> and then they're going to go to Qatar and say, look, you, you want your currency back. Uh, you have to have some of the games here in the UAE. Mm. That's what they want. They just mm-hmm. wanted some games in the just UAE. Just a piece of the pie. Which is like, you know what? Let them have a game. Let them, Who cares? Come on, man. <laughs> give, a, give a game. Like, I feel bad for them that they're willing to go to these extraordinary lengths uh, to destroy, like, the, the entire economy. Then uh, Saudi and the UAE very nearly invaded Qatar mm-hmm. uh, during the Trump administration. Tillerson stopped them at the last minute. Uh, they, K- Kushner was, I think, quite annoyed that he, that he stopped them. Uh, he, Kushner was siding with them all the time. But they were, they were like, within hours of, like, launching an actual invasion. And it wasn't just, that wasn't just about the World Cup, but the fact that Qatar had gotten the World Cup uh, had them so worked up.
2: Well, and this, I mean, this gets into the, here's another quote from the AP, global risk advisor. So I've, that's the firm that Kevin Chalker works for and founded. Also created a detailed security plan in 2014 to install a surveillance system in Qatar that could track mobile phones in the country with extreme accuracy and allow analysts to isolate individual conversations and listen in real time in court, according to internal company records that include a draft contract. And so Kevin Chalker is accused based on the Associated Press report, which is based on documents the AP says that it has Mm -hmm. of Just selling his soul, basically. (laughs) Like, what more, uh, I should say, what a lot of people would consider to be pieces of your soul, um, you know, in being involved in that level of... Surveillance, um, being involved in that level of corruption and selling it as a service um, to for personal profit to a foreign country is like really, really a remarkable thing to be accused of. Um, and again, like these are allegations right now, but it just speaks to how much money is on the table. Um, it's not just money on the table. Is not just people know about the World Cup corruption. Corruption. It's been a storyline for a while, but it's not just. Like what you see in the headlines, there's also all these lobbyists like working under the mm-hmm. surface for themselves, and this is a great example of one of those.
4: And Elliot Broidy, the Republican the yeah. RNC fundraiser uh, who was pardoned by Trump, is actually suing Global Risk Advisors. Yes, he ac- he accuses them of basically hacking his, I think his wife's emails, mm-hmm. getting it, and then getting into his own emails. And
2: that's what and led then- to Barrick, right? That's what led to
4: there was some ev- i think so- there was some evidence there about barrack's role that, that yeah. helped come out um, one of the one of the people that reported on that was was me actually uh, and i've been subpoenaed as part of this oh yeah yeah oh. part of this broidy verse
2: part of oh, the broidy Riz- story you're subpoenaed yeah i
4: got a, I got a subpoena i didn't know that which we we're, we're not responding to we're not because yep stop right?
2: Yeah.
4: and which goes back to like I, look
2: was I'm, that under the trump administration
4: Yes, and then he yeah. and then he got indicted, mm-hmm. and I think the case went away. But maybe now that he's gotten pardoned, maybe the case will come back. Yeah. But in general, like reporters are just not going to talk about sources.
2: Don't subpoena journalists. Yeah, yeah.
4: You're, and because also, I don't know. Like somebody, like it, an anonymous source gave gave us uh, documents. We. Uh, confirmed whether the documents were authentic or not. We reported on the documents. I don't know anything more than that. So even if they did drag me into court, which I wouldn't appear, but if they did, I'm like, I, I can't help you, I don't I, know.
2: I mean, all of this stuff becomes a question with the Associated Press Report too. It's like, how are they getting these documents right now when there's this really bitter battle between two of those parties? It raises the question of what is going on here? What kind of sort of warfare uh, is this? Right, and
4: Brody has wanted to take these people down. Uh, you know, I think he's got a vendetta I mean, he blames them for ruining his life. So
2: mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> not surprising he would have a, a vendetta, but it looks like he may have gotten one.
2: I, I mean, just a, a really basic tip. Don't violate Farah and don't act mm. unethically. Uh, but it's just too much mm. to there's, ask. There's more it's, money. It's, in a, it's too, too much, much to, to ask. ask. Yeah. Yeah. But they also always have the ethical calculus of like, well, this money is, is you know, that's that's for my children. That's for comforts, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Don't sell out your country. <laughs> just, just Pro stop. tip. <laughs> yeah, just stop. All right, Ryan.
5: Next,
4: next to the points.
2: Put those glasses on okay. and uh, <laughs> to have some water. <laughs> the whole routine. There you go. Ryan, I don't know if people notice this when the show ends. It takes a he's, he's still doing <laughs> just it. Just a reflex. Yeah, it's a, at a this reflex. Point. Uh, but what, what's your point today? My,
4: so my point today is this one. So if you needed a sign of just how flipped upside down our politics have gotten this week saw the cause of peace and diplomacy championed by the most watched hosts on Fox News as well as the crew over at Pod Save America while the Congressional Progressive Caucus beat such a quick retreat from it, beat such a quick retreat from a call for diplomacy that now seems like there's practically no room inside the Democratic Party for anybody concerned about the rapidly escalating war in Ukraine. So on Monday, the CPC, that's the Congressional Progressive Caucus, had sent a cautiously worded letter to the White House urging Biden to engage Russia directly in diplomacy to stave off a nuclear catastrophe and bring an end to the war, but only on terms acceptable to the Ukrainians. That moderate effort was intended to start a conversation, and it certainly did, though not the one that they were looking for. Amid criticism, CPC Chair Pramila Jayapal first, quote, clarified the letter, saying the progressives still unequivocally supported military aid to Ukraine. And the next day, she then fully withdrew the letter, blaming staff for sending it out unvetted and promising they would only support negotiations, quote, after Ukrainian victory, unquote. So that allowed Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard to say that Democrats had now become a home exclusively for war hawks.
3: Progressives in the party, the liberals, acting like liberals have acted for like 100 years and saying, maybe we should, and I wanna say I agree with them completely, we should try to get a peace forged before we all die, and then they have to retract
2: it? Why? Here at home and how it's negatively impacting gas prices, increasing inflation, and so on. Uh, You know These progressives in the letter, they didn't say stop sending aid to Ukraine now. All they said was, hey, President Biden, engage in diplomacy. Uh, and the response they got, of course, from the warmongers who controlled the Democrat Party in Washington was to immediately be smashed to pieces, so much so that these Democrat members of Congress— cowered in the corner with fear and now have gone so far out of their way apologizing profusely for having the audacity to call for diplomacy in this war that's putting us all at risk. But now everyone in the Democrat Party and the leadership in Washington is walking in lockstep as war hawks, no one daring to even step outside the line
4: and say, hey, diplomacy, let's exercise diplomacy. So this kind of segment, which allows Tucker to be the voice of anybody skeptical of war, is exactly what the Pod Save boys had warned about earlier that day. So here's Ben Rhodes, a top Obama national security aide, and incidentally the guy who coined the term the blob to describe the reflexively hawkish D.C. foreign policy establishment.
5: You make the the right point that what Biden's saying is, I won't negotiate around the, the settlement that Ukraine has to accept without them. That doesn't mean we don't have things to talk to the Russians about. It just means Biden's not going to sit there and say, well, maybe you can keep this part of Ukraine and not that part of Ukraine. That's not going to happen. But to your point, if you don't create any space for kind of debate in the center here around this policy, you know where all the concerns about the war are going to go. They're going to go to where Kevin McCarthy took it, which is like, hey, I'm getting uncomfortable here. There's nuclear threats. Let's cut off the Ukrainians, right? That's a lot of money. So, yep. you know, to some of you, like some of the Ukraine stands on, on Twitter or whatever who, like, just, you know, pile on this stuff, you may might be creating the outcome you don't want. Because by Dude, punishing yes, anybody yes. who says, let's have diplomacy, the only alternative to your position, you know is where Kevin McCarthy's going, which is like, hey, let's cut these, where Tucker Carlson is, basically. Or, yeah, where Elon Musk, I mean, there's yeah. clearly a void of people. There's a void of And, like, discussion. Elon Musk yeah. is filling it, or that guy David Sachs, some, like, idiot tech investor, <laughs> yeah. right-wing goober is filling it, you know? It's like, yeah. why don't we have the CPC, the, Congress, uh, the the progressive in the House, fill it, yeah. or at least try. Well, th- that would be a very healthy place to fill.
4: So Jayapal's claim of a staff error was a terrible look, but it wasn't necessarily 100% wrong. The staff apparently didn't give the other offices a heads up that they would be sending this letter out after several months had been spent collecting signatures. But blaming her staff for that doesn't make much sense because Paul routinely sends out CPC statements without letting the rest of the CPC know that they're coming. In fact, her statement withdrawing the letter itself was not run by the other 29 members on whose behalf she was withdrawing it. The biggest error wasn't in the rollout. The mistake was in retreating. If she'd have stood her ground, the blowback would have died out by the end of the day. And there are a ton of unlikely places she can point to to say, look, what we're saying is just common sense. Hell, here's Henry Kissinger. He said, quote, negotiations need to begin... How's your Henry Kissinger? (laughs) Negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome. Ideally, the dividing line should be a return to the (laughs) status quo ante. Pursuing the war beyond the point would not be about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself. Anyway, here's retired Rear Admiral Mike Mullen, who's former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
0: We've been talking about, since before this crisis started, an off-ramp for him. Uh, I suspect Uh, It's in the east, if you will, with those four provinces or some combination of them with respect to how it all ends. Uh, And that really is up to, I think, Tony Blinken and other diplomats to figure out a way to get uh, both Zelensky and Putin to the table. Uh, And and as is typical in any war, it's got to end. And usually there are negotiations associated with that. The sooner, the better.
4: And here's Secretary of State Tony Blinken just one week ago. And we reaffirmed
0: our commitment to meaningful diplomacy that can bring an end to the war, even as Moscow continues to demonstrate through its escalatory actions that its claim to be open to diplomacy is as hollow as it's been since President Putin launched his invasion in February. And that's
4: not surprising, given that the White House was actually fine with the letter that was later withdrawn. The the Washington Post even reported, quote, the White House did not think the letter was a big deal when officials first received it, a White House aide said, noting that the lawmakers went to great pains to praise Biden's approach to Ukraine and express support for economic and military packages, unquote. Progressives could even also have found backup from the Pope, who said this last month, quote, after seven months of hostilities, let us use all diplomatic means, even those that may not have been used so far, to bring an end to this terrible tragedy. War in itself is an error and a horror. So Emily, you got Kissinger, you got the Pope, you got Mike Mullen, uh, Obama on, on, the, on the pod save.
2: Well, I am going to be squinting a little bit, so bear with me. Uh, Just this week, Disney's new plus-size protagonist went viral. The internet debated one of Taylor Swift's new music videos and questioned whether it was fatphobic. So why are we arguing so much about weight? Well, the answer is pretty simple, because it affects most Americans. Nearly three in four adults are overweight. Some 40% are obese. As of this year, 56% of Americans say they're trying to lose weight actively. Now, there's a critical class element to this as well that gets missed in a lot of the discussion. As the CDC notes, overall, men and women with college degrees had lower obesity prevalence compared with those with less education, Among women, a 2017 study found from the CDC, overall obesity prevalence decreased with increased levels of income and educational attainment. So while food executives get rich off of questionable marketing practices at best, they lobby to get away with those, by the way. And magazine writers will cast fat phobia as a social justice issue between their spin classes. People who work three shifts, can't afford Pelotons, and live paycheck to paycheck are being told – well, it's not actually that important to prioritize diet and exercise. Those writers are putting up virtual virtue v- signal points on their own boards at the expense of people who look to them for accurate information. Remember Cosmo's This Is Healthy edition from the middle of the pandemic, a pandemic, by the way, that was targeting people who were dealing with obesity? The magazine, which is owned by Hearst UK, profiled women who wanted to, quote, open up about their personal journeys to reclaim healthy as their own. And Cosmo wasn't alone. The, quote, fat-but-fit debate has really raged over the last decade, and many publications eager to score clicks in social justice points went out at the healthy-at-any-size limb. Now, to be fair, Many outlets have done good coverage of research that suggests fat butt fit is generally a myth, and some people are absolutely part of a well-intentioned effort to help everyone struggling with their weight feel confident in their dignity as a human being. As more people struggle with weight, more people need to hear that message, of course. But it cannot be conflated with deadly and misleading body positivity messaging either. And here's where we get to the big news. In early September, the journal Nature reviews clinical oncology, published, a study t- titled, Is Early Onset Cancer an Emerging Global Epidemic? Current Evidence and Future Implications. In that survey, researchers from, from Harvard reviewed global cancer data to find, as CNN reported, quote, that the incidence of early onset cancers is rising rapidly for colorectal and 13 other types of cancers, many of which affect the digestive system, and this increase is happening across many middle and high income nations. All right, so is this because of increased screening? That's a question a lot of people might wonder. The researchers actually address it. Quote, increased use of screening programs has contributed to this phenomenon to a certain extent, although a genuine increase in the incidence of early-onset forms of several cancer types also seems to have emerged, they wrote. One of the researchers told CNN, quote, the spike is due to an unhealthy stew of risk factors that are probably working together, some of which are known and others that need to be investigated, saying, quote, many of these risks have established links to cancer like obesity, inactivity, diabetes, alcohol, smoking, environmental pollution, and Western diets high in red meat and added sugars, not to mention shift work and lack of sleep. And, the researcher added, there are many unknown risk factors as well, like a pollutant or food additives. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Let's just focus on that point. CNN picked the study up in October, but few other media outlets focused on it at all. Regarding obesity, CNN wrote in its report on the study, quote, "...not only has it become more common to have a dangerously high body mass index, but people are becoming obese earlier in life, even in childhood. So these cancer risks are building decades earlier than they did for previous generations." So 40% of the adult population is obese. That number is rising. Obesity is now causing suffering at a higher rate, like cancer and death. The causes are likely all around us, in the food we eat, the air we breathe, the chemicals we consume and wear and use in our houses and offices, but just CNN is going to focus on the study from Harvard researchers. We talked last week about what Kevin McCarthy plans to do if Republicans win the House, which will heavily be focused on, quote, oversight, because that's pretty much what you can do in a divided government. Republicans plan to investigate some good stuff, the Biden family lobbying grift, the origins of covid Just this week, though, the FDA issued yet another benzene recall, this time related to to dry shampoo products. Benzene is a carcinogen. One expert said it is possible to refine the propane, butane, and isobutane, any of these propellants, to not contain detectable levels of benzene. So why can't corporations do that? Or why aren't they? There have been six benzene recalls this year, and this is just an example from one chemical. As we've emerged from the pandemic with a new awareness of how obesity interacts with health outcomes more generally, I'd love to know what evidence major food companies have about their products. I think a lot of Democrats would love to know that, too, and a lot of independents. Now that Republicans are boasting a little bit about their broken relationship with the Chamber of Commerce, they can at least in theory, just take the gloves off in every arena of corporate corruption, even ones that they've never touched before. So what better place to start than the one that is directly killing millions of us and making life significantly worse for millions of people on a daily basis? Technology is new in a lot of these areas. We don't think of technology with food as being new. Technology with food...
4: Big news out Thursday on the investigation of the origin of COVID. The HELP Committee, which is a health, education, labor, pensions committee, put out a minor, an interim minority report that lays out much of what they've found so far in their investigation into what sparked the pandemic. If you can put up this element here, this is Dr. Richard Bright, a, a microbiologist who has been uh, skeptical of the of the zo- zoonotic origin claim, uh, he, he he posts this quote from the report quote based on the analysis of the publicly available information, it appears reasonable to conclude that the COVID 19 pandemic was more likely than not the result of a research related incident. Okay, so we're we're joined now uh, by Justin Goodman, who's senior vice president over at the White Coat Waste Project, and so Justin, this was a a, a fairly s- sober report. It, it did not kind of jump to any firm conclusions one way or another. What it does is it, it lays out uh, the the evidence behind the natural origin, then it lays out the evidence against the natural origin, lays out the evidence uh, uh, for the uh, for the lab hypothesis, yeah. which they call a research-related incident. The evidence against that it uh, relies on public. On, on, on what has been made public so far, they also say that this is part of a an ongoing bipartisan investigation. The results of which uh, will be out at some point in the future, but they want to get this interim report out. So, as somebody who's been tracking this for a long time, what what did what did you make of this report?
3: Well, I think this is the second authoritative report that's come out of Congress. The first coming out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, um, documenting the. Evidence we have no direct evidence, but the evidence we have for both hypotheses of the evidence, the origins of COVID. And uh, I'm I join the uh, the FBI and the majority of taxpayers, according to Politico and Harvard polls, a majority of taxpayers, Republicans and Democrats, and Richard Ebright and other scientists, and firmly believing at this point that the evidence we do have points to a lab leak, which is what Richard Burr. Uh, found in this report that was released today. Uh, I think that at this point, uh, the best thing that any of us can be doing is looking forward and not looking backwards, because basically Anthony Fauci, Peter Daszak, and others have given China a three-year head start on making sure that we never find out exactly what happened.
2: That's exactly right. And the reason that we know so much shady stuff was going on actually is because a lot of the work that your group, uh, the the White Coat Waste Project, and you yourself, Justin, has been doing over the course of the last several years to hold members of our government accountable for uh, the, the research that they have been doing in terms of gain of function. And on that note, there was a story we covered here last week and that you've been following really closely out of Boston University, the research that there was something, again, we're getting into the sort of semantics about what is gain-of-function, but that there was, what was it, a strain of Omicron that was basically being—
4: Grafted onto the Washington state virus, right? And
2: and Justin, there was some evidence that, again, there was a government grant involved, and again, the government didn't know that this is what was happening with the grant. What did you make of that reporting?
3: So, first of all, there wasn't one government grant involved. I think there were five government grants involved, (laughs) several coming— from uh, Anthony Fauci's division at the NIH and some core grants coming out of other divisions of the NIH. I mean, I think it just highlights what a joke the current oversight of -of gain-of-function is. I mean, it's basically uh, an honor system, and you simply cannot trust dishonest, mad scientists who are souping up coronaviruses and other dangerous viruses in labs to chase tax money. We can't trust them to abide by the honor system, and they've proven time again that they can't. Boston University is a great example. They took The Omicron strain, which had a 0% lethality in mice, they combined it with the Washington or the original strain that came out of Wuhan, which had 100% lethality, and they created a new strain of the virus that had 80% lethality in mice. So they took a 0% Omicron strain, souped up to be 80%. That is the definition of gain of function. Yet uh, the NIH says they have no idea what was going on there, and BU insists that they, need, they didn't need any oversight and it's not going to function. Uh, what's interesting about all of this is while this is unfolding, quietly, the Biden administration a couple of weeks ago released its biodefense strategy for the next few years and repeatedly in this report indicate that a lab accident or an intentional release of a bioweapon from a lab like this could cause another pandemic. Uh, So while the administration has been loath to, you know, really invest in the lab leak theory and Democrats have been, you know, kind of uh, gun shy about embracing it, certainly the administration thinks there's enough evidence that this pandemic was potentially caused by a lab leak and there might be another one that maybe we should be revisiting how we oversee this research and whether it should be funded at all.
4: Yeah, Justin, what did you make of that Biden uh, report? Because a lot of people who, as as you know, are, are very concerned about Lab safety have become more concerned about lab safety uh, in the wake of the pandemic. We're really heartened by that report. Like, found it to be you know surprisingly strong. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, there there are people pushing to make it you know significantly stronger, but it, but it wasn't a total whitewash. What wh- where where do you think that came from, and how does that clash with continuing to uh, give these grants, continuing to uh, if you saw this one, the, uh, there's a monkeypox uh, gain of function. Uh, project being done straight out of the NIH uh, hmm. now, straight which out of Anthony
3: like, Fauci's lab at the NIH. Yeah,
4: yeah. So, what what do you make of that that contrast? That the Biden administration itself seems to be at least waking up to some of these risks, while the NIH isn't, it, and it which seems kind of more important that the NIH wake up to it.
3: Well, I think we could look at the history of this issue. I mean, in you know, in the, Bi- the Obama Biden administration back in 2014. They essentially banned funding for gain-of-function experiments on coronaviruses because they were too dangerous. And that is so, you know, a Democrat-led White House took action on that issue. Um, And then that was quietly lifted in 2017, early in the Trump administration, apparently with very little knowledge of the White House, at the urging of Anthony Fauci. Um, I think there's a culture that someone like Anthony Fauci specifically – and listen, I don't have any beef with Anthony Fauci outside of his – his position and involvement in animal testing. You know, I think you could stand uh, shoulder to shoulder with Fauci on other coronavirus response issues and go go toe to toe with him on gain of function and other horrible animal experiments on dogs and other things that we've revealed over the last few years. So I don't have a problem with him outside of that. I want to make that clear. But I think he's created a culture at the NIH where this type of dangerous experimentation is encouraged. And oversight of it is diminished to the highest degree possible, where there's basically free reign to do whatever you want and maybe report it and maybe not and hope for the best. Um, But that's been happening since 2001 in the war on terror. And there were billions of dollars dumped into Fauci's division at the NIH for bioweapons defense and research. And a lot of it has turned into this crazy gain of function experimentation that likely caused this pandemic and is, I promise you, going to cause another one if we don't do something about it.
2: Justin, Republicans say, and Kevin McCarthy told me, in fact, that one of the things they plan to investigate if they win the House of Representatives and have a new Congress is the origins of COVID and the origins of the pandemic. And they're saying um, that's that's one of the big agenda items come January if they win the House. My question to you would be, who is the first person that you would call to testify? And what are some of the questions that uh, you think absolutely need to be asked?
3: uh peter daschik probably would be number one i mean he was on boots on the ground in wuhan i mean he was out there collecting bat samples working with batwoman working with the wuhan institute of virology you know had, had a very close relationship with the chinese communist party for a long time spent a lot of time there and did a lot of their bidding in terms of obstructing investigations into the virus continues to until this day and despite all that continues to get funding so i think You know, for me, he's witness number one, number two is Fauci and finding out exactly what was happening in those early conversations and how early he really knew about the, you know, the potential lab leak, because we now know through investigations, through FOIA's release to White Coat Waste Project and others that basically January of 2020, there were conversations happening about this thing looks suspicious. Scientists who since that it probably came from the wet market were saying back then that it looked like a lab leak. It was very, it was a very suspicious virus. The spike protein was suspicious. Yet somehow they all did an about face. And guess what? A lot of them have been rewarded for doing that with increased funding. Uh, Peter Daszak has received over $20 million in new taxpayer funding just since the pandemic began, including from NIH, including from USAID, including from the DOD. Um, So there's been absolutely no accountability and transparency. I would love to see people who were involved in funding this research and obstructing investigations into the pandemic that's killed 6 million million people held accountable. I think what we need to do at this point, and everyone, Democrats and Republicans, should agree about this. This is what taxpayers want. Polls have repeatedly shown this. Pause gain of function again for another five years. There's a bipartisan bill introduced by Henry Cuellar, Buddy Carter, and Mike Gallagher. The pause gain of function research for five years while we get our hands around how and if we can conduct this type of experimentation in a way that doesn't risk causing a pandemic. Um, So ban gain of function and ban funding for animal labs in countries that are literally our enemies and don't have our best interests in mind, like China and like Russia, where we've been sending tax money to animal labs with virtually no oversight about what's happening.
5: Mm.
4: So Richard Burr, the top Republican on the HELP Committee who signed this minority uh, report, also interestingly used to be uh, chair of the Intelligence Committee. And so presumably has some insight into this from from that perspective. But I'm, I'm curious where, where you, what, what your sense is of where the Democrats are. I'm wondering, the fact that he said that they're still working in a bipartisan fashion with the help committee Democrats was at least heartening because I haven't seen any much, much other public evidence that Democrats are even remotely interested in this. Have you gotten anywhere with, with Democrats on the Hill on this issue?
3: Hmm. So, in terms of someone signing their name on the dotted line and actually doing something, Henry Cuellar Quayar, Quayar is the only one who's actually done anything, introducing legislation uh, to put a pause on gain of function experiments for five years. And did he uh, get? Have, did I,
4: he get? Uh, yeah. Did he? Did he get? Protect our future money in his campaign. Protect our future mm-hmm. is, is the Bankman Freed mm. uh, Super PAC, which is which actually is concern, like like that their big thing is like yeah. pandemic prevention. So I wonder, that might, that would be my explanation. I, I can't imagine why Henry Cuellar woke up one day and all of a sudden was <laughs> <laughs> looking into <laughs> can't
3: hey, Well, his I voters think, probably
2: yeah. are interested. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, they probably they should are. be. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that's possible. I mean, I've had conversations with committee staff, Republicans and Democrats, including on the Energy and Commerce Committee, saying that there has been interest in majority leadership on the Energy and Commerce Committee, except from Frank Pallone, and he's been the one standing in the way of investigations on the House side. Uh, on the Senate side, according to the reports I saw, at least in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, that broke later in the day today about the Senate report, um, Patty Murray did seem to indicate that there is bipartisan communication and cooperation happening, and they're still looking at finding common ground on investigating COVID origins. So I'm a little encouraged by that. Um, I, you know, it's frustrating because. This is, you know, again, this is polls show that people believe this is a lab leak. I mean, it's not some far fetched conspiracy theory like we were being, you know, we were being labeled two years ago or two and a half years ago. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Circumstantial evidence is overwhelming that this came out of a lab. There's literally no evidence it came out of a wet mark. And even the papers saying that it came out of a wet mark are also saying that there's actually no evidence it started here. Maybe Mm -hmm. it amplified here. Yet we have a virus that's eerily similar in construction to what caused the pandemic sitting in the Wuhan lab, uh, maybe brought there from Laos, maybe brought there from southern China by Peter Daszak and, and that lady. But uh, I mean, I think, you know, the report that was released by the Senate today is pretty comprehensive in recapping what we know as of today and led them to the conclusion that it looks most likely they came out of a lab. So whether or not it did, the fact that the White House and com- both houses of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, the FBI and others believe that it's likely a pandemic that killed six and a half million people was caused by a lab leak, should cause us to do everything in our power to make sure that doesn't happen again, including and not limited to banning gain of function research.
2: And Justin, before we let you go, I also, actually... let me stand up for Henry Quarriar's
4: integrity. Please. He, he may be in bed with Azerbaijan, but he did not get any money from Protect Our Future
2: that I, I, for- I can see. I forgot about the Azerbaijan thing. Uh, and Justin, before we let you go, um, White Coat Waste is such an interesting project, and the way that you guys approach this issue is such an interesting project. We'll have to have you back sometime to talk specifically about animal cruelty and, and the way it all, uh, the way your group has sort of formed and has evolved, um, but tell us actually just a a little bit about the mission of, of white coat waste, because to Ryan's question um, about whether Democrats are signing on the dotted line, initially, uh, the, what you guys have been looking at was, well, how do we get Republicans on board um, with this issue of animal cruelty?
3: That's absolutely right. I mean, white coat waste, we, we consider ourselves to be a taxpayer watchdog group, and we fight to end $20 billion a year in taxpayer funding for animal testing. The government actually outspends the private sector on animal testing two to one. Uh, And White Coat was started by my boss, our president and founder, Anthony Bellotti, who was a Republican political operative. (laughs) And he actually worked in an animal laboratory in high school for an internship and was so horrified by what he he saw, he thought, I'm going to go get a toolkit in politics and then one day circle back around and use those tools to fight against animal experimentation funded by the government. So he started White Coat. I was the first employee and we take on federal agencies that are wasting tax dollars on cruel, dangerous, and you know, in many cases, just completely stupid experiments on animals. So we've actually met with the Trump administration. We met with the Trump White House in January 2020 to warn them about these labs in China, specifically mm. the Wuhan Institute of Virology, getting NIH money. We've been following, you know, we've been following. the People say follow the science. We've been following the money. And that's how we ended up at Wuhan. That's how we exposed Beagle Gate, And that's how we're shutting some of these wasteful and cruel programs down.
2: Hmm. It's just, uh, it's amazing how that positioned you to be uh, looking at what was happening in Wuhan through a mission like that one. And you're a former PETA guy, aren't you, Justin?
3: Yeah, I spent 10 years at PETA uh, <laughs> working on, you know, their style of advocacy. But, you know, for me, they, they were not really attacking the root problem of animal experimentation, which is, wasteful taxpayer spending. If animal, if the taxpayer's money was cut from animal experimentation, we'd change the face of this problem completely. Um, so our work is to unite, we call it, you know, we say uniting liberty lovers and animal lovers to fight against wasteful government spending that hurts animals. And everything we do is bipartisan. I mean, even the gain-of-function work, obviously Henry clayard is involved with bipartisan. And even if things don't have bipartisan support in Congress, every single thing we do work on has bipartisan support from taxpayers. And that's who we're advocating for.
2: I, I threw some blood on Ryan before we started <laughs> According today, but he brought another suit.
3: <laughs> no animals harmed in the oh taping <laughs> of,
4: of this. Justin, one one quick question: Is there, a, is there one place that has a co- kind of complete timeline uh, and collection of all of the circumstantial evidence around you know both theories mm-hmm. or around either either theory? I was thinking: um, do, do, so I, do we need to write that still? Like, what's the?
3: So I think. Sorry, i um, There we go. Um, U.S. <laughs> right to Know. Our friends at U.S. Right to Know mm-hmm. have a great COVID uh, origins timeline that they've put together. I think the Senate, re- honestly, the Senate report that came out today is outstanding in terms it, of it, its, it was um,
4: it was good. It didn't get enough, to, I think, into me into the circumstantial evidence around the diffuse grant, the DARPA grant, mm. like the 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 roadmap that was built and then potential. Like, uh, but it was. Re- I think they did an incredible job of laying out all the different lab accidents that at Wuhan um, and in, and in labs around the world. So agree, agree with you. But yeah, yeah, so you, you think us right to know has
3: us right to know has a great one. Um, I don't know if it will have diffused in some of the other stuff they haven't worked on directly. Obviously most of the content we have up is related directly to things we've done. Um, But if you're looking for a project on COVID origins, that'd probably be useful. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, Justin Goodman, senior vice president over at the white coat waste project. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And that does it today for us today on this edition of CounterPoints Friday. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to remember my glasses next time.
4: We'll see about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, have a great weekend, everybody. See everyone.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dierks, Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin.